Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined again by agricultural consultant and longtime contributor Robert Ramsey as we discuss the cow of the future. We have a broad discussion of what we need the upland suckler cow to achieve and what attributes are important to a successful herd going from hoof to horns and all things in between. Hi there, Robert. How are you doing? Very well, Alec. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm good, thanks. Um, Happy New Year. This is our first recording uh, of 2023, so excited to have you back on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Always good to be on here. Robert, for those who haven't heard from you before on this podcast, can you give us a quick intro to who you are and what you do as part of SAC Consulting? Yeah, so I'm Robert Ramsey. I work as a, I suppose at home, I'm a beef and sheep farmer. So I've got 40 cows and 300 ewes of my own. And then for my paid job, you know, that's a, that's the hopefully paying hobby. Um, the the boiler room of my life, I suppose, is working for SEC Consulting. Um, and we've got a lovely, you know, variable job. A very varied job anyway, where uh, I manage about 120 clients in the air office. Um, and that's you know all types of businesses, all day, all types of people. And then for the rest of my job, I do quite a lot of beef and sheep focused work, mostly beef work, um, and quite a lot of farm farm advisory service work as well. So we're running various Faz Connect groups, um, some of them beef groups, some of them holistic management type, long grass grazing type, interesting, you know, new and emerging type of group um and then also do quite a few podcasts so it's really quite exciting the the podcast world is um is growing and we are certainly involved in it so i i do um the stock talk podcast for the farm advisory service and then drop into other podcasts periodically throughout the year so um always good fun to do and always always good to be in the thrill of the hill as well that's exactly what we like to hear, Robert. Um, I think I this have is to actually, say that because I'm on it, but you know, <laughs> it is genuinely good to be here. This is actually your fifth time on the podcast over three years, so you're doing something really right um, to, to continue this streak. Um, Robert, I wanted to get us kicked off with a bit of a discussion today on what you think the beef sucker sector is going to do in 2023. What, what are your hopes for the sector and what do you see happening? Yeah, so what what is happening is what I hoped would happen. So 2022 was a really, really difficult year for suckler beef production. And and there was a lot of big decisions made on, on multiple businesses where cows, people couldn't see a future in suckler cows and cows went down the road and the cull price was very good. So there was an, an easy out, which was, you know, it's a good thing individually. But for the whole industry, it does drive the numbers of cows down. So I was worried by that, partly because I'm in it and I love cows and I love all the all the stuff that cows do. I'm in it in terms of at home and I'm in it in terms of work. So, you know, I've got quite a lot of skin in the game here. Um, and I do truly believe the suckler sector has a huge part to play in the Scottish economy and climate and biodiversity. And, you know, we've got an awful lot of good stories to tell but the economics for you know certainly last year the economics were so out of kilter with you know a fertilizer at nearly a thousand pounds a ton um, and all inputs through the roof it's easy to see why people were making changes to, to their systems however what i always hoped that was we would get to a point where the the, the thing would flip a bit you know, and the, the the cost would start to reduce, and actually, what we were receiving would increase, or that the margin would improve. And certainly, that's where we're at. Early twenty twenty three, the beef price is on the move up. You know, there's um, a lot of stories of lack of supply in England, and a lot of Scottish cattle heading to England, which is an interesting one in terms of Scottish. You know, the Scotch premium. We've always been very proud of the Scotch premium, and it, it has eroded in the last couple of years, and and you know, is now non-existent at the moment, but that's driven by a real need for our product south of the border. Um, so, or our store cattle product south of, south of the border. So um, we are seeing 
prices in some cases up to 470 a kilo um which is becoming or is heading into a place where finishers can actually start to see a positive margin in there at the same time there's less cows there's more store cattle have been sold younger so anybody who's got store cattle in the shed have actually got a real appreciating asset so they've got cattle that are gaining value every day both in terms of gaining weight but also in terms of those a pounds per kilo you know there are the pence per kilo is changing all the time as well so those who stuck in i think will will be rewarded to a greater or lesser extent in 2023 and then going forward i still think we're in a as an industry where there's pressure in terms of climate change targets in terms of emissions and in terms of you know a, a bit of a a misunderstanding of the science when it comes to methane versus carbon dioxide but that's a that's a whole different discussion so the pressure on meat consumption and the the challenges will remain but as an industry we've got outstanding stories to tell i think we're getting better at telling those stories and we have an excellent you know network of processing we've got an you know we've got everything we need and i think we're we're where we're at with a slightly smaller suckler cow herd or in in terms of number um we're in a pretty good place going forward for years to come we hear a lot about dairy beef as well so the dairy beef story is always held up as a new thing and it's not a new thing you know there's been beef out the dairy herd for hundreds of years we're seeing a lot more of it because of sex semen. Sex semen is allowing us to produce more dairy replacements from less cows. So it gives us surplus um, surplus cows that need to have a, a pregnancy to have a lactation that can then produce beef. So that that dairy beef story is, is ongoing. But I don't think we're going to see much more growth in that sector because we've, we've kind of done it. So we've got a consumer who wants high quality beef and and we do have a consumer who's probably many of them are focusing on eating maybe a little less meat but eating better meat and that for me that's an excellent story for us it sounds like a threat but it's an excellent story for um in terms of you know what scottish agriculture can do the dairy world will fill some of the processing demand cull cows you know cow beef will also f- fill much of that processing demand for you know, for the cash-strapped consumer, but the high-quality beef story is there, will be there, and we've got an awful lot of good work um, in front of us in terms of producing stuff. And the story we're telling needs to evolve with it. So we need to, um, we need to walk the talk. You know, we need to genuinely we t- we tell people we produce the best beef in the world. Let's do that. You know, let's actually produce the best beef in the world and be really, really. I think we should be proud of what we do, but I don't think we can be complacent in what we do either. And Robert, I mentioned earlier that this is your fifth time on the podcast. So in order, we've discussed upland grazing strategies. We've looked at concentrating on calving and good calving management. We've looked at holistic management and what that entails. And most recently, we discussed virtual fencing and the opportunities for that. But uh, for the purposes of today, I really wanted to dig down into what your interpretation is or, or what you're looking for um, in the ideal upland uh, beef cow. Now, um, I expect that you'll give a bit of a political answer here and you, you'll say that you don't want to favour one breed in particular, but surely there are some attributes that uh, you think all cows would benefit from in the upland environment. Um, so I just wanted to get a kind of overview on what you think the ideal cow is like um, and then we'll maybe get into some of the specifics yeah it's a, a great question for a politician to try and answer isn't it it's um there are breeders out there that would want me to say the ideal cow is a x breed from y holding you know it you know there's a um there is we've got a hugely diverse range of breeds in the country and and i i think that that's great you know i think that's what gives us we talk about biodiversity and actually breed diversity is included in that so we need we see the good work that the rare breed survival trust has done and is con- continues to do we see 
the shorthorn, so that's me putting my cards on the table, would be my um, is my cow of choice for home. A shorthorn, we've got some pures and then some cross cows as well, but the shorthorn cow does my job. Um, and it was on the endangered list or the, the at-risk list, and it's now become, having kept it going, it's now become a real mainstream breed. So, you know, it's nice to see all that stuff and, and it's important that we keep that in mind when it comes to changes that we don't throw babies out of bathwater and we don't lose that diversity of of breeds. But for the ideal hill cows, so the, the problem with hill cows is they've been very much influenced by subsidy in the past and very much influenced by the marketplace and trying to top the market and trying to produce the best shaped calf and the, you know, we need to step back and think what are we actually trying to achieve with our hill hill and upland areas and probably the answer so i'm speaking at the rare breed survival trust conference and or, or the open no i think it's, it's the rare breed survival trust conference uh, which is at the end of march and um my my topic or the panel that i'll be sitting on is called the the farm of 2040 and i think it's a really good you know, it's a really good frame to think about. 2040 sounds a long way away. It's not actually that far away at all. What does the farm, what does the system of 2040 look like? And I think my answer, I don't want to give too much away because everyone should go to that event. Um, but my answer to that is it's basically the farm of 1940, but with technology, with data, with, um, you know, all the, all the advancements we've had, we need to use, but we are looking, I think, more towards a more mixed farming approach, a more multifactorial approach as well. So not necessarily just producing stuff. We're also giving public goods. We're giving, you know, we're leaving a, the biodiversity story, obviously, and the, the hills and uplands is, is colossal. And in many cases, possibly more important than food production is actually the, the public good that the cows deliver in an upland is some beef and an awful lot of other stuff. Um, so yeah what does the farm of the future look like it looks like a modified version of the farm of the past and I think the cows so we've seen in, in the last probably in the last 10 years we've seen a different a change but the, the 30 years before that we saw a move away from our native type cows into more continentals into bigger cows into house systems into we and we we what we gained in terms of output what we get, we gain one part in one hand, and we it cost us two parts on the other hand. So we we developed systems that were slightly higher output, but much higher cost. So the cow of the future for me, for certainly for the most of the hills and uplands, is something that is smaller, cheaper, uh, smaller, cheaper to run, hardier. So hardier in terms of you know dealing with. Um, weather the climate issues so that could be um, you know extreme hot extreme cold actually all the extremes that we're likely to see going forward we need a cow that's resilient to that and basically as if she is cheap to run and gets back in calf the fertility story is the most important thing we've got if we don't have fertility we've got nothing else so the cow of the future is probably in in a hill scenario more like the blue greys and the lings and the, the things we've dealt with in the, in the past are we see it you know we've seen a huge resurgence in the um you know the, the ling breed is growing in popularity all the time becoming a very a very common sight on a lot of farms and actually in a lot of low ground farms too um and the blue grey story the galloway the, the highlander you know there's there's more of these hairy type cows being pushed further up the hill and i know reiterating what we said in the previous podcast about um virtual fencing with malcolm a uh, when we have technology to control we can actually put cattle back up into hill areas more challenging areas to do more good both in terms of our pocket and particularly in terms of the hill habitat and uh, robert you touched on something that i thought was quite interesting there as the popularity of these more native traditional type cows increases in Scotland, if it is indeed increasing, then as we get a broader and broader pool of genetics in each breed, there is an opportunity for more change and, and more differences within breeds. Would that also be fair to say? 
Yeah, so, I mean, careful what we wish for there too, because actually what happens is quite often when a breed's successful, not enough, and there's too many bulls come through, there's too many animals are retained for breeding. So we actually land up, the success of a breed can ultimately be its downfall in that we um, select more animals into into the bull system, sell more animals so that the poorer end of the bull, the male calf crop, actually lands up in, in a breeding herd somewhere as well. So definitely genetic diversity is really important as long as the genes are good, <laughs> you know, as long as the... Um, the desired genes are there now the thing we didn't touch on there talking about the ideal cow or the cow of the future is genetics genomics data you know figures are so so important when it comes to progress in any breed and what we're really trying to do is change we're trying to create a curve bending cow something that is you know a small cow that's fit to rear a big calf, to calve a big calf, produce a big calf with a, a big growth rate that's capable of converting poor forage into a high quality beef very efficiently and, you know, have a, a quick turnaround of, of production or a quick air turnaround of production. We look at probably in the beef and sheep sector, the, up, the uptake of any kind of genetic information, particularly EBVs, has been fairly low. And you look at the comparison with pigs, poultry and dairy and look at the, the rate of genetic gain in those sectors. You know, they're unrecognisable even in my my career. I started here in 2011 and at that stage a 10,000 litre dairy herd, a 10,000 litre average was not exceptional but not many people were achieving that. And now we've got those guys who were achieving that are now pushing 12 and a half and 13,000 litres. And, and is that the way we want the beef sector to go in down the full-blown intensification route? No, it's not. But it is an example of the power of data, the power of figures, the power of um, actually the power of artificial insemination and, and using a smaller pool of bulls of very high genetic merit. So there's a, there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of... Um, embracing what particularly what the genomic world is so ebvs are estimated breeding values so there is a certain amount of estimation you know it is an estimate and therefore there's there's a um an issue when it comes to accuracy you know how accurate is that estimate the more data that goes into that pool the more accurate the results are but still it's an estimate when we go to genomics we're looking for specific genes that do specific things um so in in the cattle world the, the myostatin story is interesting so we're now looking for myostatin in certain breeds which is the 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 cause of double muscling so it's the gene mutation that that drives double muscling some breeds see double muscling as a, as a big positive and some of them see them as a big negative. So you look at the limousines and they're seeing, looking for certain myostatin mutations that they want and certain ones that they absolutely don't. So the ones that cause bad calvings and things they want to breed out, but the ones that cause, they've got a breed, you know, they've got a version they call the profit gene. So they're, they're looking for that. Whereas you go to lings and shorthorns and others, they're looking to breed myostatins out of them altogether because they're chasing maternal traits. So that's a very, very small dip into genomics and there's a serious amount of power in there should we wish to use it. And Robert, you've worked with a number of beef clients throughout Scotland on a daily basis even. So what would you say are some of the barriers that are preventing the uptake of this kind of stuff within the sector? Money and tradition. You know, the money, so the the beef sector is, is always tight. You know, it's always a challenge to make a profit out of a suckler cow. And with the result, we're not looking to often, you know, investing really heavily in, in genetics is often seen as too high a cost. But actually within that investment, it's a true investment. You know, there, there should be a, a real positive financial outcome from positive genetic stories. So the, certainly the, the cost of... Um, the cost is an issue. Tradition, you know, we've got a huge, an amazing tradition of stocksmanship, of turning out 
animals for show rings you, know, you go to the island show and look at what people do and it's absolutely it's fantastic as a spectacle um and we see true stocksmanship people turning out animals that they've selected by eye turning them out to be at 12 o'clock at the highland and you know it's an, an amazing an amazing world but we do miss the you know the, the animals that are the most profitable aren't necessarily the ones that look the best so there's a um an issue in there and the, the other the other barrier to genetic progress or, or genetic technologies is actually the way we produce things so if you've got a shed of 200 dairy cows that are all artificially inseminated anyway all of these technologies are available at your fingertips and they're not a radical change that change has already happened they've moved towards ai systems and um generally you know housed or housed for a significant period of time handled twice a day or sometimes three times a day so it's it's quite easy in the dairy world but if we've got cows that we fling to the hill with a bull you know adapt or, or incorporating those um breeding technologies is really quite hard to do and maintain that traditional system so it's not for everyone and it's not you know or the ai and and that type of stuff isn't for everyone it's when that's embraced by the breeders we then land up producing a bull for natural service that has is of higher genetic merit so there's a lot of work to do but i'm pretty sure that's where the, the future lies for um some if not all of the the hill areas is to is to have bulls that are selected at least partially on um genomic type scenarios the the value of stocksmanship is always going to be needed you know i don't want to see animals selected based on purely on um you know their genetic profile and ignore feet and legs and ignore their actual confirmation their temperament there are all these individual factors that make a good cow don't change it's just that whether we can change the invisible bit inside them to make them perform even better understood yeah no that's good um robert i did want to get a little specific with some elements of of what i think uh, are important features to to the upland cows so um if you'll indulge me, obviously I'm going to come at this from a kind of conservation climate change perspective. It'd be good to get your take here. But starting at the back of the cow, Robert, um, do you have anything in particular that you're looking for when we're considering hooves and, and legs uh, on your cattle? So it's probably right for me to point out that the feet are actually at the bottom rather than the end. <laughs> So, uh, yes, if a cow can't walk, if it can't stand and it can't walk, it's of absolutely no use to anyone. So feet and legs to me are the, one of the fundamental, fundamentally most important things about an animal is a leg in each corner um, and feet that aren't, you know, these hill cows, we really don't want to touch them. We really, the more, the more you have to intervene the more cost you add into the system. So I have a few clients who routinely foot trim every single animal on the farm. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, what should we just milk these cows if we're going to be as as intensive as that? Should we just milk them? And their argument is you do it once one year to sort all the problems and then all the other trims are just to tidy up. And I kind of get that. But why don't we aim for something that doesn't need it? You know, that's and, and those those hardy hill cows pretty much do fall into that that category. But um yeah, feet and legs, it's where actually where we get I was talking about genomics and EBVs and things, and and it's something that can't be covered on you know, in, in any of those scenarios. It's it's a um very much a linear trait, and that's where linear classification comes in. So like the the dairy dairy world do many of the pedigree beef producers now classify their or get their cows classified by a third party to basically score them in terms of these linear traits um, with feet and legs being for me one of the most important um, traits for them all. Certainly coming from a, a dairy background we've always had a big emphasis on mobility scoring um, at home and just just uh, good to get your get your thoughts on that. Moving slightly up the cow then 
Um, wanted to get your opinion on the udder and what I'm going to call the milkiness of the cow um, and to what uh, what extent that's something that we should be promoting. Obviously, that's going to be hugely important for um, suckled calves. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what she... That's that's her whole purpose, isn't it? So she, she is... You know, a suckler cow is, compared to a dairy cow, inefficient. You know, she only produces a calf. She doesn't produce a lot of milk. So we need an udder that she is a walking udder that's the she's a, a milk vessel and that, that is the most important bit the the udder of an ideal cow isn't the one you see in a child's cartoon of you know a cow where you've got a great big you know you have a great big pendulous udder um you want certainly a young cow you want all cows to have a tight you know have, have that udder up in the air not not trailing through the muck, not being trampled on, not you know a, a good udder. It's always bad to see a good cow going down the road because she's dropped her bag too low, you know, and and it becomes the the problem again if we don't want to touch these cows. For we want a no input system, which is the the dream. It's never going to be the reality, but we want a no input system. So the calf that's born itself stands up and suckles. The, the first time you touch it is when you tag it. And the ideal is the next time you touch it is when you wean it. So if it can't, if it can stand up and can't get a tit in its mouth, you're going to have to do something. And, and those, the calf mortality bit, much of the young calf mortality story is based on either failing to suckle at all or not getting enough colostrum on board and not having a, a, a good enough immune system at a young age. So that other, you know, that the other is often, or sometimes a calf is a limiting factor as to whether it can suckle. You get dopey calves and and things that are just a really, you know, really frustrating to deal with. But having another that is not oversized, that's got plenty of milk in it, but is is well up in the air and and in the calves in the calves eye level, is essential again. It's as important as feet and legs. And. Uh... Robert, you just touched on interventions with calves there, so I'll, I'll ask you. Um, I'll ask you the now. What um, what kind of temperament are we looking for for cows within the beef herd? Obviously, we want people to be farming as safely um, as they can, um, in addition to as profitably or sustainably as they can. Well, there's no nobody writes how profit you profitable you were on your gravestone. You know that's if you. Working with cattle is a pleasure when it's going well. I mean, you're working with nice, you know, deep cattle with a decent temperament. When you're working with those wild things, it's horrible and it's it's stressful for the person and it's seriously unsafe. You know, you've got something that's um, probably ten times most people's body weight. Maybe if we're talking about a hill cow, maybe it's slightly less, um, based on the size of the cow, not the size of the farmer. Um, but yeah, you know, you've got something that if 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 it wants to fight with you, if it wants to get away from you, if it wants to go over the top of you, it will win. So why, you know, the temperament story is, you know, anything that looks at you the wrong way. I think anything that is, uh, has a, a negative temperament, is, is an angry or or flighty animal, I think we should be managing out the system. And particularly when we've got a, a time when cull cows have a big value. You know, we've got cull cows in, in most cases are making over a thousand pounds and in some cases up to two thousand pounds. If we've got that and we're running a business, what a great opportunity to cull those few problem animals out the herd. And you often see one cow causing the rest of them to be really flighty. You know, one one cow's reaction to something stirs everything else up. So managing those aggressive cows out the system is, you know, it's a it's a, a real priority. Um and and you know, the thing we often hear is that yeah, she's she's quite aggressive when she calves or she's um you know, she's hard to work with, but she's a really good, she's a good mother. You know, she's she's good at what she does. She's actually not. So there's a lot of research to show that cows that have a bad temperament themselves breed calves that also have a bad temperament. And they also have, on average, have calves that have a lower weaning weight than a more placid animal. Now, 
Simon Turner, who um, works for SRUC as a re- researcher, was like I heard him talking. It was a real light bulb moment for me, and he was talking about evolution and and what you know what makes a flightiness heritable, or what makes you know how does this work? And his point was so basically in the in the second trimester of pregnancy is when so stress hormones cross the placenta. So you actually land up with, if you've got a lot of stress hormone crosses the placenta, you are predisposing, you're setting that calf up to deal with stress. So it's mother, if it's mother is stressed, it's then programming the calf to be stressed as well. And it's a fight or flight environment. So if you, if that calf is born into a dangerous world, the mother's stress, the mother's stressed by danger, the calf's going to be born into that dangerous world. So it, the mother pre-programs that calf to be flighty, to be to deal with that, to be flighty and aggressive and hard to deal with. So actually these angry cows that are climbing gates and trying to jump out of skylight windows and all that stuff, they are pre-programming every single calf they have to be just the same as them. So it's a self it's a self-fulfilling prophecy here. You know, we keep this constant by by keeping her in the system we keep her coming through the system for generations to come so if we just kill her out the system and don't keep a heifer off her we make an awful lot of progress and you, you can see that and there's a lot of examples of of that you know you can you can make big inroads into that in a pretty short period of time just just by selecting retaining more heifers from 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 other animals and and really targeting these these angry ladies and it shouldn't be too, at the moment it's not too big a job because we're getting good money for them and you could actually replace them with a bought-in replacement for largely the same money and uh, robert we talked a little bit about the calf a minute ago but um what advice would you give to people on the attributes around actually calving themselves yeah so calving themselves again you head into a calving, you know, we're looking probably a month off the start of calving. There's going to be issues. You know, there's going to be things we have to deal with. There's going to be, um, there's not, um, I don't think there's any, there's no species anywhere that has no, but you know, being born is one of the most dangerous things we'll ever do. Um, so, you know, calf losses and things, we, we're always telling people about improving performance, improving efficiency, getting more calves on the ground and things. And that often involves intervention, involves us doing things. It involves to start with us getting diets right and things in advance. And that gives us, gives the calf the best chance, gives the cow the best chance to have a, a successful, a positive calving experience. However, we always get a breech birth, a leg back, a big calf, all these things. And intervention is, you know, is important. Selecting a cow that has a big enough, a big enough pelvis to, to a clear a larger calf is, is a really important tool, a really powerful tool. So I think that's a, a conversation to have with a vet is to think about a vet or um, reproduct, reproductive technician is, you know, should we be pelvic scoring? Should we be looking at what animals we should retain for replacements? Um, but if we assume we're going to have to calve some one or two of these cows, a few of these cows, the first thing, the most important life involved in that, so there's three lives involved in a calving. There's the cow, there's the calf, and there's yours. There are plenty of people who, they, they, you know, the Buddhist argument would be that every every life's worth the same. Well. I would not, I'm not here to question or criticize Buddhists, but in an agricultural system, your life is the most important one of all. So don't do anything unless you can do it safely. And that involves infrastructure. It involves having the right, the right stuff to do it. It involves always having your phone in your pocket and making sure that your phone, wherever you have your calving facilities, that should also be something that has phone reception. Can you speak to somebody before you do it? Even if you've got no one at home, do you phone a neighbor? Do you speak to somebody and just, you know, ask for help? Um, there's far too many stories. Every year there are stories of people that are lost at calving time. And we know before that happened to that person, they could have done things differently. So 
the actual calving process, getting rid of those angry, bad temperament cows, you know, is is of huge value at calving time. Um, and also heading towards a cow where we have to do that a lot less is, you know, again, a, a better route to getting more calves in the ground, making more money and also making sure that you are safe. We now have less people on farm. We've got more, because of less people on farm, we're more mechanised. So a lot of these cows are housed and they're bedded on straw, which is blown in over the barrier. They're fed with a feed wagon, which drives up the front. And the only time they see a human is when they're going to do something that's sore to them. So there's a thought when it comes to having the right cow and also having a process pre-calving, walking cows, getting cows more used to you being present, making sure that you're part of their day-to-day experience rather than just you driving a machine. Um, So yeah, lots to think about in terms of temperament and calving, but the most important, the only thing, if, if people take anything away from this conversation, stay safe, speak to people and, and stay safe. And remember just because it hasn't happened to you yet, that it, we're, we all put our life in our hands when we're doing this type of job and we need to be, approach it with caution. Does the job need done and how do we do the job safely are the two questions. Well said, Robert. Um, just moving on to what I've got here as my next attribute. Um, what do you think about length and depth in your upland cow? Is that a factor that is important? Well, we're trying to sell a carcass, aren't we? We're trying to ultimately, whether you're most upland producers are actually selling a store animal, which will then go on to be finished elsewhere. But we have to keep the needs of the finisher in mind. So we have to speak to the finisher, you know, have that conversation. What do they want? And I think we know, we do pretty much know what they want, but what they want and what you can provide not might, might not be exactly the same thing. So length, I don't know. Length's important when it comes to a you know the length of an animal is where the, the high value cuts are. So the longer it is, the longer its loin is. So you're going to have more sirloin and fillet. You're going to have more you know of the high value stuff. So you're really important. Is it important that my cows are really long? Not not really. You know I think the cow size story is um, certainly so important in terms of resources and and emissions and efficiency in general. So um, I think. In terms of the ideal cow, I would have her as something that can can handle a, a so if she can can calve easily, we can then put a bigger bull, we can put a continental bull over her even, and actually have that smaller cow producing a Charlie calver, producing something that's really more fit to market. So the length of the cow, obviously she pa- she's half the herd, so she passes her half of her length to her calve. So we, we don't want wee short you know, dumpy things that are are no use, but I wouldn't certainly be selecting on on length. The interesting thing is about now is what does a in the twenties and thirties we had belt buckle cattle, we had tiny wee cows that were basically built. That was when, you know, our food security question, our, you know, production of food in Britain is not it's not a new thing. Like back in the twenties and thirties we were massively less self sufficient in food than we are now. So we at that stage, the the cattle world anyway, was we were exporting genetics to South America to who pumped cheap beef into us. So they went to small cattle because they could fit more carcasses in a boat. So it's, uh, you know, why we went there was all to do with logistics. Now we moved away from that and we moved into a production-based system and we moved into... Um, you know, we wanted away from small things, so we wanted huge things. And then we, we've basically, over the last hundred years, created, gone from too small to probably too big. We're probably not that far away, but there are animals out there that are, are too big. The interesting thing now is if we're looking to use more, make more use of grass and home-produced forage and, and hill grazing, the engine room, the, the, the belly on that cow is where it's at. We want a big room and we want probably a cow that's got relatively short legs you know maybe bring her down a, a frame score if you like but you do want that big um the big engine room on her to convert a lot of forage into a lot of poor quality forage into um the energy and protein that she needs to 
look after herself, look after her calf, produce milk, get back in calf. So the boil the boiler room is the most important bit. Is um, you know an, an animal? It used to be that gutty cows were a it was a criticism, and it's now probably within reason something that we're we're looking for something with a bit more belly on it. Do you know there's there's maybe another topic for discussion here, Robert? But when we originally started, I was asking you about the the cow of the future, but it's it strikes me here that there is an argument that the calf of the future and the cow of the future could be two different things. I mean, when we're talking about bringing a calf on and and into the finisher world and, and finishing it, that calf might have attributes that are totally different to things that we want to retain within the breeding herd. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So the one I think to f- frame that is the, the stabilizer breed, which is not, and, and I'm, I've, Consciously wasn't bringing individual breeds into it, but the stabilizer breed are not for everybody or everywhere, but they've done an awful lot of work in terms of genetics, EBVs. They've got a dollar profit EBV, which is basically if you use this animal, you're going to be basically X amount better off, which is, you know, it's an amazing process. They've, they've looked at maternal weight and growth rates and, you know, where it's going and we've now come to a point where a lot of these cattle are um it's kind of closed system type job and we're often in the east coast producing a bull beef from these animals so it's a very you know it's a it's a cheap kept cow so quite an extensive cow and then a very intensive calf rearing process now bull beef we could discuss that in terms of inputs and resources and things as well but what the stabilizer breed have achieved is that they are, their target that they're achieving is that bull calves at a year old are heavier than their mother and some of them are 100 kilos heavier than their mother which I think is amazing to think so that's the same so it's a it's a stabilised cross so it's, it's the same breed the, and they've managed to get to a point where the, the heifer calf the female has a low mature weight and and the, as on the whole they've got a high growth rate so we're calving heifers at two and we're producing heifer replacements and also bull calves that are fit to convert feed into beef super efficiently and to a big carcass weight or to an uh, not over over spec but a, a decent carcass weight at a very young age so now almost they're at the stage that the, the 13 month rule is becoming an issue that they're actually nearly ready before um, the the actual cut off or when when they they can legally be called beef. So it's an interesting an interesting world. So is the calf of the future the same as the cow of the future? The challenge we're always going to have is so I think breeding our own replacements is where we have control over what our herd actually looks like down the line. So we want to breed our own replacements. So that means that the to an extent the calf of the future is going to be quite closely associated with the or the beef calf of the future is quite quite closely associated with the cow because it's actually the cow's brother um but when it comes to crossbreeding as well we can fire some really quite exciting different options in there to create something that's quite radically different to what the cow is um if if you want now many people want to keep it very simple and you know add value to their their own calf um, and you know there's umpteen options so yeah the future I don't think we're going to come down to many parts of the world have got a, a few systems we've got many many systems of producing beef and I think that'll continue because we've got a very diverse range of land available and resources available so I think we're going to have a there's no sweeping statements here but I think the yeah the future is interesting for, for both cows and calves and uh, Robert, these cows and their calves will be spending time ideally in the hill environment. And in the summer, that's a, a great place to be. But in the back end, in, in the autumn, in the winter, it can be pretty grim and pretty harsh. And um, obviously the, the challenges brought on by climate change mean that we're likely to see more adverse weather conditions. How important is 
heat insulation um i suppose that that's a technical term how important is hairiness in your in your cattle i think heat insulation's a better way to put it the cow thing you've got a cow you've got a hairy cow with a thick skin and you, she's also got what basil loman always called a three kilowatt heater upper jumper so basically her rumen so her rumen is full of bugs and those bugs are working hard digesting rubbish forage into something decent and the byproduct of that is well we know there's a byproduct of methane but there's also a big byproduct of heat so actually they've got a central heating system a true central heating system in the, in the middle of their body they've got a thing that's hot and do they reckon a dry cow so a cow that's not standing in the pouring rain will be trying to lose heat at minus 15 degrees celsius so do we need to keep them warm no as long as they're fit so as long as they've got flesh on their back and if we're out wintering or, or pushing cows into upland areas through the autumn and winter we don't do that with lean, with lean cows you know we do that with fit cows um because that that fat the, the fat on their back keeps them warm and also the when they are trying to be warm they're also mobilizing fat so they actually lose condition so outside is the place to put cows that have to have to lose condition and i think the we mentioned the ideal cow and the bit i didn't mention is is body condition so we need a cow who is fit to rear a calf get back in calf you know produce all the milk that calf needs and improve our own body condition to a point that she's then fit to winter relatively cheaply on a hill, a hill area we as a country are probably the only country in the world where fit cows are a problem you know people worry that their cows are too fat and that's because we've generally got housed systems, high quality silage, and, and we struggle to get condition off cows. Now in a hill area, condition on a cow is, there's a huge amount of megajoules of energy that isn't needed from feed already on their back. So we can be a bit sorer on, not sorer on them, a bit, we can make them work a bit harder um, in, a, in a hill area as long as they're fit. Um, the, but yeah, the staying warm thing, the coat, the coat on them is interesting as well. So a really thin skinned, short haired dairy cross limousine won't perform as well as a Highlander will, who's got three coats as well insulated and, and waterproof. And so having the right animal for the right place. Um, but I think to be fair, as a, we've made a lot of progress in that, in that area. And, and generally you do see cows that are pretty well fit for purpose for those upland areas now and robert what's uh, what's your take on horns whether or not the cow should have horns or what their function could be in the uplands um so we have again with our diverse range of breeds we've got polled ones and we've got horned ones and if i picked a certain you know um, if I said all hill cows should have horns, I think most people would know what we were talking about. But um, so I think the horn, the you look at, we'll, we'll go to the Highland cow first. You know, the Highland cow is an icon. It's a, it's what makes, you know, Scottish tourists come to, or people come to Scotland as tourists to see the environment that they expect to see. And that's Heather Hills and Highland cows and Blackie ewes. And, you know, so should we go dehorn every highland cow in the country absolutely not do they do they serve a purpose not not really they do serve a purpose within a herd in terms of you know bullying you know there is there are issues with horned cattle there are issues particularly in herds where there are some with horns and some that don't we don't want horns so for for most calves will be dehorned for management purposes and again back to the health and safety story and things um, dehorning is is a necessary evil in, in many herds but we do also have the opportunity there we've got a lot of polled genetics most breeds some breeds are entirely polled and most breeds have polled options um, so if we can breed them without horns it's a, a bit more um, or a lot more politically sensitive if we don't have to cut them off you know if, if they're not there to start with it saves a job, it saves a cost, and it also is a, I think it's a better story. So um, for our, our output, for our end product, um, selling cattle with horns to a finisher really limits the number of finishers who would want to buy your product. So um, yeah, I think 
and for the most part, horns are a, more of a problem. As I say, we've got the iconic, important, um, high high hill type cow, um, which she should keep her horns. And then the rest, we probably need to work towards breeding the horns off them rather than cutting them off. Okay, Robert, that that's great. That's has come to the end of what my list of traits and, and attributes were. Is is there anything there that you think that uh, that we've missed that we haven't discussed enough? No, I think the summary I think is we want that small, medium-sized cow to go to a hill, perform, rear her calf, get back in calf, be easy to work with, and perform all the outcomes that we want so be good at you know producing quality beef for a, in the first instance and also deliver those biodiversity conservation stories that we are that you, i know you certainly this podcast is is built on um and i think for people who are concerned about the future of suckler cows the reality is we cannot deliver the upland conservation story that we we are challenged with delivering without without managing those areas with cattle. The sheep story, the deer story, that, you know, these other ruminants are available for grazing, but there is nothing like a suckler cow for opening up. Um she's probably, you know, she's not very good at grazing. So she's she's very good at converting what she eats, but she's not very selective. So she is really good for you know, target for not targeting, for opening up, for grazing off roughly these areas rather than a, a you know, the, the your old blackie you will go and nibble that sweet herb down to the bone and then go and find another one and nibble it down, whereas the cow will graze a fistful of grass at a time and then move on. So we've got that, she'll poach a wee bit, she'll open things up and she is, she is the future of the up, upland environment or a big part of it anyway. On that note, um, I will bring us to a close. Um, but uh, thanks very much for for coming back on Thrill of the Hill. It's always good to have you. No, and, thanks for uh, having me, Alec. And I look forward to number six someday, hopefully. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, until then, Robert, we will uh, we'll leave you to it. But thanks very much. Awesome. Cheers, Alec. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.